Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, let me just say real quick, this is a creatively conscious mortality podcast, mostly having conversations with people that are in the world, powerfully engaging with their own mortality, usually creatively, sometimes engaging with other people's mortality, sometimes not creatively, just living life like they do and the work they do and how they're in the world. So that's what the podcast is, just to kind of bring you up to speed. And I just want to acknowledge you for deciding to listen to a podcast titled You're Going to Die. The reality is I've lived through over 10 years of calling this thing You're Going to Die, and you can imagine it's not always been easy. Uh, I remember from the very beginning when I first needed to start talking about the open mic that I did back in 2009 to invite people to it, how much I'd have to say before I told them the title, uh, just trying to make them comfortable before the jarring truth comes through in the name of the show, you're going to die. And now it's a nonprofit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird uh, sometimes. And I can only imagine when people get the emails, they sign up for the email list and it comes through the email inbox and it says you're going to die or their calendar event pops up. And actually, just to kind of jump right into this, uh, the story of how our guest in this episode came on to the show uh, is 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 uh, similar <laughs> in its jarring nature. But maybe like you listening now, something about it works. There's something I trust about the uh, undeniable truth of the title. Like it is confronting. It can be used as a death threat. But also, it is just a fact of life, like maybe more true than most anything that we know. Um, and what I do with reaching out to guests is sometimes I'll pop an email out. And um, years ago, like at one of the first open mics, someone read uh, Andrea Gibson poem. And that was my introduction to them all the way back then, which makes this episode particularly special to share, to have known about Andrew Gibson for all these years and then decide, especially after finding out about their journey with cancer, but especially how they've been dealing with it and, and publicly, I knew I wanted to reach out and just see, you know, maybe they'd want to talk with me on the show. And so I sent an email to their manager uh, I titled it. This is actually what I titled it. I said, uh, the subject is Andrea Gibson on You're Going to Die, the podcast. I'm pretty sure that that's what I wrote as the subject. But when it came through to the manager, Andrea told me the story. When it came through to the manager, <laughs> the manager did what they think they're supposed to do, what what maybe is asked of them or or expected of them, which is at least to check in. But I think the manager read it as, um, you know, a death threat, <laughs> like a threat. And, you know, like Andrea Gibson, you're going to die. You're going to die, Andrea Gibson. And as it turns out, because it came across that way, I, I can definitively say after talking to Andrea, that's, that's why they said yes to doing the show. And there's something really important for me in that. You know, I could have named this thing, uh, have the good life. Uh, we're all mortal. 
Um, I know there's tender, gentler ways, maybe, like a lot of the organizations in the world that do good, important work that aligns with what you're going to die is up to. But when I first heard that name, I actually heard it from my buddy, uh, Andrew Kippen, who back in 2009, 2010, he was helping me organize uh, the early open mic, like the earliest version of You're Going to Die. And actually, uh, this is perfect. Uh, Andrew Kippen is who uh, introduced Andrea Gibson's writing to me. He performed one of her poems at one of the earliest You're Going to Dies over 10 years ago. And... Um, and so, yeah, so he's helping me try to organize the event back then too. I remember sitting with him. I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but just for the purposes of this particular episode and and for those of you that maybe haven't heard some of the past episodes, we were talking about what to name the event and he said, why do you do it? And I said, well, you're going to die. I don't remember it being that long before I said, this is why I'm doing this show. This is why still I'm doing the nonprofit. I'm doing our programming. I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing this episode because uh, I'm going to die. You're going to die. And there's something so true and undeniable about it. And it was uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable for me, but it is, it is the truth. And Andrea knew and felt it and knew what the invitation was. And I feel like they hit the ground running when we started recording the conversation. Like I think people do hit the ground running at the open mics or in our grief workshops. They've already said yes to the truth, like this thing, this confronting fact. And by saying yes to that and showing up, they're already halfway in. They're already like, yeah, let's do it. And Andrea is pure, wonderful, beautiful example of that. Andrea said yes and showed up and it was like we'd been talking to each other for years. And so there's so many reasons why I'm I'm glad this exists in the world uh, that you'll just get to experience and find out for yourself. But, but one of those is because of like what led to it and how it is like a little snapshot of how you're going to die has been all along this trippy thing that's called something really kind of scary. And, uh, and I laugh and I'm joking, I'm silly about it, but I've had some actually really intense interactions, um, putting this thing out in the world. Um, really serious kickback and and I get it. You know, that actually is part of what proves its value that anyone would say no way. Fuck that. Like, are you kidding? Um, because it's that full of meaning, I guess, or it just cuts right to the heart of the matter, no matter where we're at. And I've been in all the places where I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to face it. And then also in the places where it's been the medicine of my life to like show up and remember and deepen my experience and understanding of how I am in the world. 
Just a couple things to keep in mind. You know, we talk a lot about Andrea's cancer. If you don't know Andrea Gibson, they've gone through a lot of treatment. There's a lot of story there that we'll get into in the episode and Andrea will set up for you. But also they have had Lyme disease. There's anxiety uh, attacks that they've dealt with, panic attacks, just lots of other bits that we'll touch on. And I think it's important to say so now so you get the context of who they are as a writer and a performer and a human. And that my access point, my return to Andrea Gibson is is because of of them and how they show up in the midst of these things. And, and like in a way they can't refuse, but say yes and be vulnerable and visible. So a couple a couple other things to to mention. Uh, we talk a lot about their book, their newest book, You Better Be Lightning. Uh, keep that in mind. And um, I'm going to play a song at the end of the episode. Uh, this song is by their friend Liza, who they talk about in, in, in the interview, in our conversation. And it felt like a way that I do want to use the podcast, which is to like bring the legacy of others in, especially those people that matter to the guests, these precious human beings that have touched their lives and who are dead now. But in a way they're here and alive and and the conversation we have about Liza. And so then the song at the end to kind of catch us after everything um, Andrea and I talk about, uh, it feels like it belongs here. Andrea Gibson is one of the most stirring and influential spoken word artists of our time, best known for their live performances in which they regularly sell out large capacity rock clubs and concert halls. Gibson has changed the landscape of what it means to attend a poetry show altogether. Gibson's poems center around LGBTQ issues, gender, feminism, and mental health, as well as gun reform and the dismantling of oppressive social systems. Their live shows in which they are often accompanied by musicians have become loving and supportive ecosystems for audiences to feel seen, heard, and held through Gibson's art. And Gibson recently released their sixth full-length poetry collection, You Better Be Lightning, and publishes new weekly writings in their free digital newsletter, Things That Don't Suck. I can't wait for the next thing I get to create and do like the idea of doing like music and poetry with Andrea Gibson the next time they're here in the Bay Area. But for now, what an honor it was, what a pleasure, what a like life-changing exchange to have this conversation with Andrea Gibson here on You're Going to Die, the podcast. Yes. As you were saying that, I was just sort of looking, I mean, I'm wearing a Dolly Parton shirt right now, um, and, which always makes me feel more alive. And mm. I'm, I'm just looking at my body and, and thinking, yeah, this body of mine is here. And um, <laughs> and it feels wonderful to have a body mm. that's here. And sure, um, I've been through some stuff in, in getting here. Um, and not all of it was fun, um, but over the years, and over time, I have learned to interact with challenges in a in a way that often can turn them into, um, I guess, what I would call an opportunity. And uh, what I've been through recently with the cancer diagnosis has in many ways been an opportunity for me to um, 
I get closer to my own heart and that I've been grateful for. Mm. Yeah, I just watched your most recent video, I, th- I think um, only just a couple days ago about the scans that you just got back. And 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 so I guess um, maybe it'd be worth a little time to just describe what your diagnosis was and maybe even like a little bit of like how that started and um, and then through to this newest news just to give a little context to uh, the listeners around the cancer um, part of your life. Yeah, definitely. So in July, I think it was, or prior to that, for a few months leading up to July, I had a stomach infection that I was trying to heal. And oddly, I had an actual stomach infection that tested positive on the test. But um, at the same time, I, you know, uh, essentially, I was, tumors were growing on my ovaries. Um, So to know what the pain was coming from at this point, I'm not sure of. And I don't know if I ever would have went to the doctor, Mm. had the stomach infection also not been there because the pain was just building up and it was becoming quite excruciating. Um, And so I would say it was um, about two months of trying to figure out what was going on. and then I, uh, I, I went in for a cat, a CAT scan and they found um, a bunch of masses on my ovaries. And I went in for, I knew immediately, I knew that it was cancer. I had mm-hmm. been feeling um, like cancer was coming towards me. I, for mm-hmm. a couple of years, I had actually been telling my partner um, that I thought I would get cancer at 45. And I hope I didn't create it with that thought. I think it was just, uh, I, I thought it was intuition. Um, I, I think it was intuition. And so, um, yeah, I went in for surgery. Uh, we didn't know going into it if it would, uh, if, you know, if it would be cancer or not, but, uh, or they didn't know, I, I, I knew. And so uh-huh. um, <clears throat> I woke up. My partner was sitting beside me when I woke up from surgery and she was the one who uh, got the job to tell me. She told me and um, she knows me so well and she told me in a way that was the absolute best way (laughs) to tell me. Uh Um, And I think at that point I was just saying, I don't care. Somebody just get this effing catheter out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All, all (laughs) All the other things in the moment that are happening to you because of the cancer. Yeah, and my dad walking around the room. My parents had just flown right in that day from the East Coast because uh, they wanted to be there because um, my aunt had um, passed away from ovarian cancer, and I think mm-hmm. that they were quite concerned. And so they yeah. came in, even though they we none of us really knew. And uh, my dad was walking around the room, having to finally make peace with the fact that I curse every other second when I say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which, by the way, is okay here too. So yeah, okay, good. To <laughs> Let know. it rip. Yeah, I always uh, get a little. Um, I feel a little uh, like I don't know how to talk <laughs> if I can't. <laughs> if I can't swear. Yeah, don't worry about. Don't worry about it. Let it rip. Yeah. So anyway, I um, and so that happened, and I got diagnosed mm. with ovarian cancer stage two B, um, and then which my friend said is the perfect diagnosis for a poet to be or not to be. <laughs> and, um, and so I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Right. And then I entered about, yeah, I just finished chemo recently, um, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago and I got my scans back and, um, and they're clear. 
And mm-hmm. I think folks know that ovarian cancer is a chance of recurrence. And so um, it, it's not like it's this, I'm learning more and more about interacting with it more as sort of a chronic illness. And everything in my life right now is about taking care of my body, um, taking care of my health in every single way, my mental health, spiritual spiritual health, and my physical health. And um, and learning like lots of new ways to do that. But the last five months, um, I've been sharing what's been going on online. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. um, typically just through speaking about it, for some reason, as soon as I was diagnosed, I I didn't have much interest in um, sharing it via writing. I trusted my voice more. I wanted folks to, every single time I'd ever heard somebody share online that they were diagnosed with a a serious illness, um, I had read it and I didn't trust that it wasn't something written by their manager or a, or a PR team or something like that. Even if they right. did, I, I, even if they were saying, I feel so hopeful, I, I don't, I, I didn't believe that they did because I couldn't mm-hmm. see their face or hear them. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to, uh, so most of my sharing throughout the last months, which I've shared a lot, I've really wanted my community to be a part of this um, because I didn't think I could do it without folks knowing I didn't think I could bear that loneliness. And, um, and so I've, I've been sharing it via video and uh, just sitting down and basically talking about what's going on throughout the process. Yeah. I mean, it's both just like simple and natural, you know, having just watched that, that video about the scan and there also is of course your, uh, you know, your aliveness and, and, and the poetry of your speaking, which is really um, special. Also, just really seeing the theme, I feel like all the way from maybe even the original announcement video, but like this presence of kind of beauty, you're just like simultaneously being what you are trying to acknowledge the cancer is teaching you, which is like, look at the sky, like, oh my gosh, the clouds. Oh, look at my shiny skin. <laughs> like you're, it's like while, while you're trying to be like, here's what the cancer has been doing to me, you know, like here's what I've been taught. You're actually literally just that in these videos. I'm just sitting, I'm actually, I was laying back on my couch after having finished your book from beginning to end. And I watched that most recent video and it's like, it's just so hard to get through it without, you know, bursting into tears at your generosity and authenticity and and boy i get it that i both feel like you're the kind of writer where i have this thought that is you're real to me in your writing it's there's no like publicity or a manager getting involved like your poetry is has you in my life as a real being but then to like also get how much it mattered to be in communication like with your body and your face and your gestures and the spontaneity of your emotion and your words throughout this. It's it's really powerful to uh, be able to be a part of that. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And the book was such a wild experience because I handed in the book, I handed in the final edits and then I think it was just a few weeks later where uh, I was diagnosed and Mm. the energy that went into the book was my intention with it was sort of haunting when I got the diagnosis because my intention in writing the book 
was to um, have something I'd be comfortable with being my final words. Um, and I was thinking about mortality a lot because of uh, different things happening in my life, not not my own health. Um, you know, we're in a world pandemic. And I also had a friend um, who I had spent much of the pandemic with who had a terminal cancer diagnosis. And I had spent uh, the pandemic with her and her partner and young daughter. And so going through that with them um, and then, and it was influencing the tone of the book so much, mm. especially in regards to how I wanted to speak about the people in my life. I wanted to speak about folks in a way that I, I imagined that I might naturally be inclined to if I only had a few more minutes um, to live. But my friend who passed away, her name was Liza. And um, I had never, so it's interesting because nobody really teaches us how to die. I had, I don't know why it's not something we learn very early in life. So when you die, like, <laughs> because I feel for me, all of my life now is I'm so interested in how to die, how to die in a way that I, <laughs> sounds so wild, I don't want to say enjoy but uh, but that my essence, my heart would line up with. Um, but Liza, the way that she lived her last 10 months of her life was something that I didn't know was possible in a human being. I truly did not know. Um, there was so much grace, so much presence. And she grew up as a small kid. She was raised Buddhist and she was a practicing Buddhist and she was... Um, one of the most committed activists I had ever met in my life. Um, I told this story on a, a podcast recently, um, but she was so frustrated with the fact that she couldn't go to protests uh, during the pandemic that she was um, sort of doing her own actions. She spray painted mm -hmm. the names of um, women who had been murdered uh, by police um, in the middle of the night downtown because she couldn't go to protests. And mm. um, she's just amazing. And in her, you know, the last thing I saw her do was I, the day before she died, um, we were at a party. Um, this is a sad story, but we were at a birthday party for her daughter so that she could, uh, we were celebrating two weeks early so she could watch her daughter turn six and so her daughter could turn six with her mama still here and mm. um you know I, I there was this one moment where another friend uh walked by her uh, but walked by liza and asked how she was and she is uh she flexed her muscle she flexed her mm. bicep and she <laughs> said i got this and I just, I've never seen anything like it. And what it did for mm. our community um, and the way that she handled it, it was, our experience was so much different because of the grace with which she approached that time. And I don't know, had that not been my experience right before my own experience, if mm. I would have even known, it, if, if something in my cellular being would have, would have even known it was possible. Um, and then her, you know, her, death man i let she um her last the last thing that she said when folks asked her how she wanted her life to be honored 
Um, she said, just don't let anyone say I was the best at anything. It's so obnoxiously American. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just loved that. And, and it, mm-hmm. it, it changed me immediately as soon as mm-hmm. I heard that. I just stopped mm-hmm. ever wanting to be the best at anything. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Me too. Uh, me too now. Um, and even thinking of her by, you know, two weeks or so, you know, before she died to be flexing uh, her muscles uh, even in like, I've got this as in, I've got this dying too, you know, by then, right? I mean, she knew what was happening. That's when she, she actually died just, I, it was it was the next day. I think it was the mm-hmm. next morning. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's what she meant. She meant that mm-hmm. she had death and, mm-hmm. and, and she could handle it. Um, and mm-hmm. it was something that, you know, I, and I do, I know that's true. I was hanging out with her a week before she died and... And there was an event coming up that she was so excited for. And, you know, we don't think it's to watch somebody who knows they only have a few days left uh, get mm-hmm. <laughs> excited mm. for something that was happening in two days. It just, I didn't know that was possible. Mm. And it changed something in me um, to know mm. that it was. Yeah. I look, I have a lot of things I'm kind of juggling here. Um, it reminds me of one of your lines in your your book, which is this: "Is it something like go through death like a stop sign?" You know, um, is that the right? Yeah, run death like yeah. a stop sign and keep <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when my mother in law was dying. Um, I was walking down a hill near here near my house and. She was dying in Orange County and we were just away from her for this particular stretch of that time. Ultimately, we were with her. But I remember that day feeling that excitement. Um, And it didn't last long and it's so hard to like make room for that because I think of our relationship with dying, which is understandable. I mean whether it's cultural and all the things like it's hard, you know, if someone, when my mom was dying had come to me and been like, this is exciting. (laughs) You know, I would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, but it was a feeling. It came on me like a baby being born, you know, like when you feel that kind of news um, coming. And so hearing Liza is like a version of that. And then I'm thinking too, with the writing that you finished this book, before the diagnosis, and then you even said, which I was going to ask, like, did you? How soon did you write after the diagnosis, like the day of or whatever? And and to hear you say that you didn't really, that you were more inclined to like speaking and sharing, and you'd done the writing already in a way. It's like Liza and your aunt even maybe like gave you a chance to write, almost like grieving before a death or something. You know, does that resonate? Yeah, I just lost my train a lot. Uh, my I know I threw I threw a lot at no, you. No, no, it's not you. It's chemo. I'm still I'm I still have some <laughs> chemo in my brain, and it <laughs> keeps it, it the train whatever trains of thought it de- it deroots that it reroutes them constantly. I know. So tell me the question one more time, so I don't forget because I was so my, I was just following you on that on that. That's trip. great. I just needed to blow my nose because I'm super snotty already. Um. 
yeah, and I say I know what you mean about chemo brain, not because I've lived through it, but because I've lived with it, you know, with with my mom and my mother-in-law. And and so I'm just just acknowledging acknowledging that. Like I don't know what it's like, but I I've heard it um talked about like this. Um so I guess my partner has ADHD and it's interesting because there were ways that when I think about all the different gifts that have come from this time, mm. I I never quite understood. Like I couldn't understand <laughs> as well as I needed to, to really show up to her. And then I started chemo and it was as if our brains were operating this in a very similar wow. way. And that was another uh, gift that came from uh, this time was that now I, now I have a, a new empathy for that experience because um, mm. I, I couldn't conceive of what it felt like before. But mm-hmm. tell me your question one more time. So I Well, now you've got me on another train of thought, but I, I this one is a bit, the one that you just got me on is a big one that I, I will not forget. So I'll come back to that. I'm going to put that thought over here on the side. And what I'm wondering is if you finished the book before your diagnosis, and I was going to ask, like, did you write right away? Have you been writing? And and so it was, it was, you answered that question. It's like you, you haven't been writing maybe when the diagnosis happened, maybe sometimes, but that you were inclined to be speaking about it, sharing with community. And, um, and then I almost wonder if like Liza and your aunt or whatever gave you a chance before the diagnosis, maybe even in a way connected to the int- intuition you had about what was coming to like get this book out, like, early grieving, you know, or early processing of what was to come, what you didn't know was going to come. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating because as a writer, I, I think people do this differently, but I've always written, I've always written where I want to be, not necessarily where I am. So I wrote a number of things in that book that were aspirations for my own living. For example, there's a short poem in the book where I don't know if I know it exactly, but it's called Wellness Check. Actually, I do think I may have it memorized. Um, And it's very short. It just, it's just like one sentence. Um, It goes in any moment on any given day, I can measure my wellness by this question. Is my attention on loving or is my attention on who isn't loving me? And Mm -hmm. I remember writing that and I I really thought this is what I I need to um, really be (laughs) put my attention on more often Mm. because, and then the diagnosis came and I, uh, and then it just, it was as, it was natural. I, I want to say, I want to say so bad. I worked, I worked to stay positive or I worked to have an open heart to this process or I worked to not be afraid. Um, and that wasn't what happened for me at all. But it was simply some blessing. I don't know if it was just 15 years of therapy, just finally uh, <laughs> falling into place <laughs> in, inside of me. But I, it, it was a, a blessing. And, but um, as you're talking about writing, uh, I still didn't, after the diagnosis, um, the reason I think I wasn't writing much was I wasn't thinking much. I, I was having virtually no thoughts. I was just mm-hmm. existing <laughs> I was existing in the moment, which, you know, I followed all these different spiritual teachers and, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle and diff- different folks like that I had listened to so much over the years, but it was always sort of 
um, something I couldn't quite touch into. And then all of a sudden somebody says, you have cancer. And then this, this living in the moment became so simple for me. Um, and I think maybe, maybe it was a fight or flight response or because Uh I knew that I couldn't, I knew I, I couldn't, I didn't have the, I, I didn't have maybe the strength to worry about it. And so I just landed on this sort of, it's really strange to say bliss, but that was something like what these last months have been because mm-hmm. I stopped thinking um, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, yeah. or whatever. Like I stopped thinking and then I was just in a con- constant place of, I could feel nothing but love, and I and and I keep saying love, but I don't even know if that's the word. It, it, something more similar to peace, um, something more similar to just being in touch with the part of me that is um, that will go on forever. Um, may, uh-huh. So maybe that's my soul, my spirit, but just that being what was uh, what has been guiding me more. may know this already but you're going to die the podcast is produced by yg2d which is a 501c3 nonprofit. yg2d is our official acronym and nonprofit title for you're going to die all the things we do need the usual support nonprofits ask for and depend on so please support what we're up to now a couple options for doing that let's keep it simple You can go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D and become a patron for the podcast. That's like specifically a way to take some funds, $1 a month, $5 a month, whatever it is, and give it to the show to help us produce this thing and make it the best version of a podcast we hope is possible. But also you can go to YG2D.com and click on the donate link. From there, you can go in and choose programs that you specifically want to support, but you can also give general funding to all of the things we need money for. But let me give you a little snapshot of the programs we have active in the world. So Alive Inside, our prison program, is currently working with the Ohio Innocence Project, where their goal is simple. They want to free every innocent person in Ohio who has been convicted of a crime they didn't actually commit. We're holding grief space, grief workshops every month for a community that has been freed to be able to tell their stories and be witnessed and be with other community that have lived through similar experiences. Alive Inside is also working with the Humane Prison Hospice Project and their Brothers Keepers program in San Quentin to hold similar space. Alive Inside is like so precious and dear to my heart. Being able to go back into San Quentin over the last month after two years of not being able to, well, it was just so, so powerful and uh, meaningful, felt 
uh, so right to be able to get back there and being able to walk in the yard and have some of these guys shout out to our Alive Inside program was was really powerful. Nothing like nothing I've ever experienced, really. Um, so definitely Alive Inside could use your support. We also have our music and hospice program, Songs for Life, where we send musicians to play music for the dying and not just play music for the dying and their community when they're dying, but to write songs for them, ideally as a part of the legacy of their life and death. And so that's uh, Songs for Life, our music and hospice program. And then we also do work with cancer patients. We do workshops uh, holding space creatively for that community. We also are able to go in and visit those patients in person at the hospital while they're getting treatment, showing up for them, listening to them, giving them a chance to express themselves and be heard. Uh, but really, any and all the programs we have could use your support. So again, for the podcast specifically, you can go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D or go to YG2D.com. That's our main website. And check out all the stuff we have going on, the grief workshops that we do every month, the events that we have planned, eventually live events, whenever those can happen again. You can find out all about that there. You can subscribe to our email list. But if you want to contribute to the 501c3 nonprofit, tax-deductible amounts of money, just click on Donate on the website at the top of the page, and you'll be directed to PayPal. And if you want to send a check, you can just send it to P.O. Box 720040, San Francisco, California, 94172. So I did, like I said to Andrea in our conversation, lay back on the couch and read their book from beginning to end. I didn't just lay on the couch. I like moved with emotion and uh, out loud laughter and crying fully, feeling them on the other side of every poem. So while you might think, oh, well, this is what you do when you have a guest like this on a podcast, you plug their book. I mean, that's true. I want to support Andrea, and I want you to feel enough after listening to this episode that you do too. But I also urgently, like, if I could just talk to you separate of us sharing this podcast with you, if I ran into you on the street and we happen to start talking about books, I would say, go get yourself a copy of Andrea Gibson's You Better Be Lightning. If you want to feel a human like change you with their words or shine moonlight on your own experience of being alive and where it meets theirs. This book, you have to read it, make time for it, get it for yourself, get it for a friend. Easiest way to do that would be to go to andreagibson.org. And there's more conversation coming, but I just wanted to say that now in the midst of the show here, and also to introduce uh, some poetry from that book. You know, just to give you a little taste of their voice with their writing, through their writing, here in the middle of the episode, like we do a little mid-show moment to catch us here, slow us down here in the way they do with their poetry. So... 
Here's some poetry from Andrea Gibson's book, You Better Be Lightning, scored by our producer, Nick Jana. Timepiece. I've never known who Nick is. I show up just in the stranger of time. Sift every grain of sand from the Pacific coast into an hourglass that fits in the palm of my hand. I turn the hourglass upside down and Vancouver trades places with San Diego. When they ask how I covered the wildfires in snow, I say, I had time on my hands. My grandfather was a clock who stopped before I met him. I've heard he was so kind you could look into his face and know you'd never been late for anything. My mother is still a little girl, riding on his shoulders. Time flies and she reaches up to pluck feather pens from its wings so I can write this life down. I try, but it doesn't stay down. It keeps flying. So fast, I count my wrinkles the way I used to count sheep. When the number gets high enough, I'm told I'll fall asleep forever. But I once watched a woman skip her gravestone across a lake like a smooth pebble. Death hops if you let go at the right time. The Buddha says the right time is always now. My father calls me on the phone and before I can say hello asks, do you know what Steve Jobs said the instant before he died? He said, wow, time is money, but the end of money is wow. My friend wakes up at noon, goes to bed at eight, wants less time because she wants less pain. I understand, I've been there too. I can spot a scar beneath a wristwatch from a hundred yards away. And no, it is not the weak who try to clock out early. It's people who are desperate to go home. Einstein says time is relative. Says the higher you get above sea level, the faster time goes. I live in Colorado. My house is over a mile into the sky. All day I hear the wheels of time burning rubber on the clouds. My life in a getaway car racing toward the border, which is an invisible line. I only call death when I forget how to speak eternity's language. Forget that to run out of time is to run into the truth that none of us have ever been our bodies. If we were, how would we fit in each other's hearts? To make up for lost time, you did not need to know why time went missing, or what kidnapped it, or if its face was on the back of a milk carton every day for 15 years. To make up for lost time, you need only to put down the grudge you are holding, so you can pick up the phone and say, how many days did we need each other at the same time without knowing it? Bitterness is the easiest way to leave this world, having had only a near-life experience. My partner and I have hard days, hard months, but time stops when you're in love. So I am the same age as I was when we met five years ago. She makes time for me with her own hands, builds me a watch from the silver that hasn't yet grown in my hair. Beside her, I've learned that the only real way to waste time To drag the seconds to the curb, to fill the landfill with minutes, is to let my body be a time capsule I forget to put my heart in. Don't forget to put your heart in. Regret is a time machine to the past. Worry is a time machine to the future. Gratitude is a time machine to the present. No one books my travel for me. I decide where I want to go. 
I decide if I will be a sculptor carving out time the way that Michelangelo carved the statue of David after two other artists gave up on that same block of marble, citing its poor quality, its impossible brittleness. All time is quality time. Don't abandon your chisel, believing it's not. No matter how it looks, you and everyone you know have hourglass figures, each breath a falling grain of sand. To truly live is to see right through the skin to the avalanche. If we never deny the inevitable end of the story, we will write it more beautiful while we're alive. Yes, like, um, so Eckhart, who I call my boyfriend, Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I sometimes think I bug folks with all, all my, <laughs> I, I'm getting a little bit too woo-woo for people, but. <laughs> no, not for me at least. I'm yeah. still going to be rowdy in my woo-woo. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that he said is that uh, people are far uh, more likely to um throw themselves awake from a nightmare than they are a comfortable dream. Uh Um, So the idea that the hardships that come into our lives and the struggles are here um, to help us is, you know, and that's a hard thing to say. I, first of all, I never want to say that to other people. Like that is, that is what I, that is the narrative that I choose to deal with my own personal struggles. And if anyone's uh-huh. listening and they um, have somebody else in their life who's struggling, it's not a good idea to be the person telling somebody <laughs> somebody yeah. else to think of it as a, a gift. Um, you have to, that has to be a place that you get to on your own. And it yeah. has to be a, something that, you know, you're doing because you feel like it's actually going to help you. It won't, it's not going to be the thing for everybody. Um, and also, mm-hmm. I never want to suggest that terrible things happening to people are, I mean, that I'm a very also angry political person. <laughs> so, you <laughs> know, know, all of that, it, trying to figure out the balance of all of that can be a bit tricky. But for mm-hmm. me, in regards to the gifts, that's my lens on um, my own personal experience. It's It's not how I look at other people's lives and feel like they should feel. But for me, it, it helps so much. And I've it's not been forced through this time. And over the years, as I, I've gotten older, it becomes less and less forced. I wanted it to be an intention when I was younger. And then um, over the years, and naturally settled into really feeling it more and more. Um, mm-hmm. Where I'm almost at the point where um, you know anything that could, um, I, I kind of feel like bring it on. Um, I, mm-hmm. I want to know what this thing ha- has has to offer me. <laughs> has to mm-hmm. offer basically my capacity um, to be more in touch with what is true, what matters to me and more in touch with um, my heart and and my joy because I've found that my joy um, lives under, uh, lives beneath these struggles and it's the opposite of what I, I'm inclined to think naturally, but it just continues to happen. So I'm going with it. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, earlier I had just thank you for that, and and I'm kind of connecting it to earlier you'd said. I guess I'm 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 going to paraphrase. I'm trying to remember something that seemed like you touched on, which is maybe what has you in this part of your life has you in relationship with the cancer, the treatment. Um, and I'm just can't help but connect the Lyme disease and kind of what that was like. And among lots of other things that your poems reference and that I know of just from, you know, you being in the world. And so there's this sense that you have done a lot of having this stuff happen to you and creating out of it finding meaning from it. And so then no surprise you hit this point and have this diagnosis and 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 not even like have it be the work of it. Like have it be like you don't have an, a choice but to be this in these things. Do you, does that resonate? Yeah. And what's, uh, what's funny is I, <laughs> so many folks have commented like you've been through so much and it's, illness has been, Illness has been a thing for me since 2003. And I got officially diagnosed with, in 2010 with Lyme disease, but I had been sick for years before and it was so much of what was happening in my life. And I was so private about it for so many years. And even when I started to be public about it, I wasn't nearly as public as but friends who were braver in regards to vulnerability and, and sharing. I was mm. so afraid uh, to talk about Lyme disease because um, I felt vulnerable in a way that I wasn't used to being vulnerable I, uh, with. I felt um, it's, a tr- it's a tricky thing because um, it's a disease that people don't often believe in. Even medical doctors for a lot of messed up reasons don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. And, but it was my whole, that's been a thing throughout since 2003. So that's, that's like 17 years now, um, or, or even more, I don't know how Mm. many. Um, and, and so, when you hear that, I know a lot of people think, God, Andrea's life has been hard. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> life has been hard and sure. mine has been, I would say, exceptionally wonderful <laughs> mm. um, <laughs> in, in spite. And there is, you know, there is a poem by, God, I don't know the name of the poem. Maybe it's called Today, um, but it's a poem by Denez Smith. And in the poem, they say, um, Ah, oh, I forget it, but every morning or every day I'm here, every morning I wake up is a day I've been spared. Dance with me in that thought for a while. I did, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I just, I -hmm. I, I love it so much. And now again, Mm -hmm. my train has been lost. Um, (laughs) 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 I'm learning this in all of, I wonder if a month from now, it's just officially going to like, I'm going to be a lost train. No, I I am, I am, uh, I am good conductor. And keep um, conducting me back. Yes. I, because you're not, we're still in it. It's just like, this is the unfolding thing, getting to this poem and trying to remember the exact words. And, and I was going to, it was going to land. I mean, I was going to pull into the station <laughs> in this really, really poetic way. And I completely, I completely <laughs> forgot. <laughs> I completely forgot what I was saying, except to say, yes, illness is not new to me. 
um, mm-hmm. and and looking at the experience of having uh, chronic Lyme disease and then um, juxtaposing it beside the cancer diagnosis, the different experiences from community um, and friends and from the general public, the, the different responses, it's way different. I've learned um, a lot through that, but going into the cancer, di- uh, cancer, and I, w- I, I just, I said that I'm not going to carry any more shame about my health into how I speak about things moving forward. And mm. I'm going to be transparent from here on out about Lyme disease, how sick I've been for, <laughs> I mean, I've been sick since I was just a kiddo <laughs> and not a kiddo, but just, I mean, very, my whole in, entire adult life. And so mm-hmm. it's something I'm used to. I think it actually helped me in chemo because I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> I was terrified of chemo because I didn't know how it was going to interact when I already have a weakened you know, system from Lyme. And yeah. I actually think that having had Lyme disease and, and also other things like I spent a year having panic attacks every single day. And so that sort of stuff actually helped me. And in my personal experience, comparing the two, I had a far more difficult time um, physically with Lyme disease than I have thus far with cancer. It doesn't mean that Mm. um, it won't, it won't, you know, worsen in the future, but thus far my experience was Lyme just pummeled me. um, Mm. And I didn't, I didn't have that with chemo. Well, it seems like you're even really present to the difference. It's like it's dawn on me, dawning on me when you shared in this most recent post about your curiosity around our culture with cancer and our culture with some of these other chronic illnesses. And, you know, there's a real part of Lyme disease less than ever, but there's a real relationship to Lyme disease where people are dismissive or they literally don't believe it or doctors especially in the medical context dealing with some of these chronic illnesses. And so then... I'm feeling both the possibility that, well, first I want to acknowledge you said that in that most recent post and it's dawning on me that like you've lived through the things that you listed. You're like, I want to know about cultures, our culture's relationship with like cancer compared to anxiety, panic attacks, uh, Lyme disease, these chronic conditions. And so I'm just sudden, suddenly realizing like you listed things that you've lived through. And so you have a real experience of like the difference um, that you're curious about. And then also, I don't know, I'm wondering with the Lyme disease, like your commitment to being vulnerable and open and sharing with your community about the cancer treatment, like I wonder what it would have shifted to be able to do that with Lyme disease. Not that you could have or whatever, you know, there's no obviously going back and doing that, but that's maybe part of the question. Oh yeah, of course. I I always yeah I write about it, you know, and my writing self is wiser than previously at least, <laughs> was wiser <laughs> than my living self. But mm. I think I wrote something like, even when the truth isn't hopeful, the telling of it is. And I could mm-hmm. have offered my own self a lot more comfort, maybe, but also a lot more exposure to criticism, to be more public about having a chronic illness. And I say that because I watch my friends um, online and I watch them get both support and criticism um, or, mm-hmm. or questions and have to interact with all this bullshit. Um, but I know for myself moving forward, like, yes, it, it, it is a, like, I will not hide about, <laughs> I won't hide about that again because it is, it wasn't serving anybody, but the difference I've, and I think I said this in that last video, I haven't done 
hardly any reading except poetry in these last months because my attention span has mm -hmm. been limited. My vision has been a mess because of chemo and also my memory as I, as I'm proving here. Um, and so poetry <laughs> was really, uh, the only thing, um, that I was, I was reading much of. And so I, d I don't have an education currently yet, but I will, I will soon have an education on what exactly is the difference because people in my experience, and I don't want to say this as a blanket statement because I know people who haven't had support that have gone through cancer alone. They've gone through cancer without their friends. And that just sounds like absolute hell to me. But in a general sense, I think we culturally, we believe in cancer. We uh, feel like mm. we understand what it is. I had, um, I had, you know, I feel like when I was a child, I had an idea in my head, though I'd not seen anybody go through chemotherapy. I had an idea in my head about the difficulties of that and the challenges that came with it. Chronic illness, we struggled to, um, we struggled to know how to show up for people because, and I don't know if this is something specifically about U.S. culture. Is it that with cancer, mm -hmm. we think, is, is it like we feel like we're rooting for a game? Like, you mm -hmm. know, is it, there can mm -hmm. be, there's a finish line and there, you're going to win or you're going to lose and we can cheer for that. And I, I, I don't know. And with chronic illness, um, first of all, we have some idea that people don't die from chronic illness. And that's just absolutely not true. We have some idea that people don't, die from depression. That's absolutely not true. That's what Yeah, but you're is. right. We do have some idea like yes. that. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so I wonder if it's um, that we we think of it in these sort of short terms, which actually isn't, um, it, that's not the case. It's, mm -hmm. it's still something that folks interact with for their lives, constantly doing tests, like wondering if it's going to come back and, and all that. And, and also many people, I talked to, um, a man, a friend of mine connected uh, me with him who has had cancer for the last 18 years and um, has been doing cancer once, uh, chemotherapy once a week for 18 years, which just wowed me. Um, mm -hmm. But showing up to, I have a friend who has, um, has had depression in such a serious way for the last, I mean, 22 years. And we, we, I, we need to learn how to show up to those folks as well. And, um, and yeah, I guess I'm including myself in that <laughs> as well because of, um, because of Lyme disease. But I know that we don't know how to do that yet because I know mm -hmm. how little support um, people are getting. And when I compare it to my experience um, that I've just had through this time, it's much different. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm I'm wanting to connect something that feels woven even into like one poem in in your book, um, and and I'm wanting to acknowledge like the love letter, the tick. Like there's there's a theme of you not just speaking and writing to love in like loving relationships, but like love to like the broken relationship, the person you're angry at, you know, like there's themes of that throughout your book, it seems. Um, and, and the, the least tiny gift of the tick, um, too, and just feeling all that kind of, like you said, somehow writing 
uh, into the future for what the next thing would be because there just inevitably is these things that like want to break us or do break us, break our hearts um, and feeling the like way that you really intentionally with this particular publication, which this, with these poems, with this writing are bringing love to so many of the places in life. Um, but the other thing I'm noticing, I, I, that's just an acknowledgement. That's not a question. Thank you for that acknowledgement. That's that, <laughs> that's absolutely what I was uh, trying to do. Yeah. So thank you for knowing. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I've definitely received it, and um, and I'm feeling probably so moved by some of these poems, like moved to tears and laughter, and also you know like moved to tears and laughter in, you know, watching some of your videos you've been posting about what's been going on. This invitation to here and now and um, like feeling the power of your writing and your being through all of this as that kind of invitation to others. Yeah. One of the blessings about being a poet has been you know, I was t- laughing with my partner Meg the other night because, you know, I think first, what are all the different things that I've talked about over the years, like sexual assault and queerness mm-hmm. and um, gender and um, mm. Lyme disease and depression and anxiety and panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people think my life is bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this is the stuff. I mean, to go back to my point, it's like, this is the stuff. This is the place to write from. But sorry, go go yeah. on. <laughs> So, you know, when a new thing would come and and I would notice like the first time I started talking about when I started writing about suicidality and um, and my my own experience with struggling to want to live at different points in my life, that was a really transformative time for me because I realized I, I don't think that I knew before then that the fact that I had had th- those experiences and then I was writing about them and it was helping other folks in some way, or I was hoping it Mm -hmm. was, and I was having conversations where people were saying it was, um, it was comforting to them. And so Mm -hmm. then I had to sit with the fact that, Oh, like, had I not, (laughs) had I not had this experience, maybe there would be more suffering in the world. And that's like, you know, that could verge on narcissistic. So I hope I'm not pushing it that far, but I think of this way for all, all writers. And so I was laughing with my partner the other night. I'm like, seriously, do I seriously (laughs) have to I, do I seriously have to do the cancer thing as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like totally. I've got enough topics. I really have enough topics. Yeah, you're like, this is, I'm quoting you, which I wrote this quote down. I wrote a bunch of quotes down. I'm like, oh, so many things. But your quote, I thirst for my own silence. And it's like, does that line not connect to just, you know, let me be just quiet. Like, let me not have something to experience that I need to write words about and put words to. And I don't know if that line, I don't know if you wrote that line because of that, if it connects, but. You know, I think that I maybe wrote that particular line in a different tone for that poem, but it resonates Mm, with mm -hmm. me here for sure. And yeah. um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mm, Yeah. And um, I just, uh, I, I guess I'm also, well, did you have something to add there? You know you what? I, I did, but then I forgot your question. God damn it. 
Great. Okay. This is being in the moment. This is people, we are doing it. This is us actively just one moment at a time. Trains going off the tracks left and right. <laughs> tracks. You know, I actually called my friends when I was going to do my first pot, my first, I haven't spoken <laughs> to hardly anybody throughout this time, even though I have mm. done uh, the video that, you know, made videos sit yeah. on my porch, but I've not done any live interviews because of the different way that my brain is working. Mm, so I actually mm -hmm. called my friends and said, um, please let me be on your podcast so I can see if I know how to talk. Oh, yeah. And what we mm -hmm. figured out was I do know how to talk, but yeah. I commonly don't recall the question. <laughs> don't recall the question. <laughs> yeah. And what's wild is it's simply with that, like <laughs> the other day I was, I put together this eight minute poem of other people's <laughs> it's a long story but it, of other people's lines and I have almost the entire thing I guess it wasn't the other day <laughs> because I have almost the entire thing memorized so poems yeah. I can memorize but when it comes mm. to just conversation I, I keep forgetting what we're talking about but I feel like we're doing great you're doing great it's all it, we're, it's all it's gonna be and we're just gonna edit it just dramatically to all make sense in the end <laughs> <laughs> you, we have to please leave in some of my losing my train of thought because <laughs> I'm so sad about that. Nick will, Nick will. Um, we have to capture it here. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm doing it too. So just to be clear, and I'm not again not comparing what it's like to have chemo brain, but but there are ways in these kinds of conversations. There's, you know, just to acknowledge, there's so many parts and things to like pull on and that pull us and the emotions of this stuff and, and just listening to you and having read this whole book, you know, it's uh, so much. <laughs> and so just, just like being easy on yourself with your chemo brain in conversations that have like a lot of heart and meaning, like, of course, we're going to lose our train of thought. I am. Um, and then also with sure. these conversations, you know, they bring up so much. They bring up mm. everybody we've ever lost. They bring up everybody yeah. we're afraid of losing. They they bring yeah. up our own fears of death. And so, you know, there are all these different roads. Both of our heads are going to and hearts are going to keep traveling down as, you know, when as mm -hmm. something gets mentioned. So it makes sense. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Um. You know, I have this relationship with the things in my life that have been really scary and hard and fucked up. And 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 a poem in your book really connected to this feeling that I had during some of the hardest times in the last five years where I really knew that what I was feeling about it and what was happening to me didn't have as much to do with the thing that was occurring in my life. But it had to do with old stuff that I kept getting dragged through and faced with and confronted by. Maybe even like lifetimes of stuff. But I'll just, you know, since we want to avoid woo-woo woo-woo too much, I'll just I'll just keep it to like in this lifetime. We'll both remember um, the closeted woo-woo people throughout this interview and then go back to being a woo-woo. We'll have two <laughs> We'll have just like on being podcast, like two versions of the episode will come out. Uh, woo woo and rowdy woo woo. <laughs> um, but but there's. Let me see if I can. You said, what part of your life's record is skipping? Yeah. Is that in the? Is that in the how the worst day? 
Yeah, what um, part of your life's record is skipping? What wound mm-hmm. is on repeat? Have you done everything mm-hmm. you can to break out of that groove? See, I can remember <laughs> poem. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> now speak for 10 minutes about the poem. Okay. <laughs> and don't lose your train of thought. No, I... <laughs> I'm wondering about that line and sort of what I just shared from my own personal experience. I mean, is that what I described for me? Is that it? Like, do you see this cancer as that other, another moment of, hey, face this? Hey. Yes, absolutely. So I was, you know, I don't say this casually and I hope it never resonates as critical for anyone else who experiences this, but I was a lifelong hypochondriac in such an intense way. I mean, it was, it was it was serious. It, it controlled my every thought. It was what kept me from, you know, eating peanuts on airplanes because I was afraid mm-hmm. I'd suddenly develop a nut allergy. It was, it, mm. it was so intense. I was telling my friends on their podcast that I my entire life could not look at the word oncology. If I went into the hospital just to say pick up a friend from whatever a vac- something not serious, um, and I, I just glanced at a word. I'd see O-N and I would start to have a panic attack. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was my every thought I was constant, or I thought I was, I thought I was um, thinking about death a lot. But what I was doing was I was constantly trying to push um, death away. And so mm-hmm. I have, and all of that hypochondria stemmed from, you know, an incident in my childhood. And so as this came up, I could feel... Um, and I suddenly wasn't afraid. There was almost like this experience of really relaxing my body and watching that past stuff come up mm-hmm. and then feeling it in me and then feeling a, a chance or a, a, the potential for it to move out because of this. And mm-hmm. I will say that this diagnosis cured my hypochondria. So I do think that I I truly do not have Mm -hmm. it anymore. I mean, maybe it will come back, but I don't have it right now. And it's Mm -hmm. so strange to have lived my whole life that way. So I Mm -hmm. do think, you know, all of these things that these struggles that come up or many of them, um, they are uh, wanting us to kind of go back in time and and heal um, the wound that is making the challenge harder right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And had I had all of that fear through this time, it would have been an entirely different experience. I almost felt like um, there was a way that it was sort of cleaning me. (laughs) Like I felt Mm -hmm. like I was having this bath of of Mm -hmm. my insides of just uh, of my spirit. Um, but definitely when stuff comes up, everything, all of that past stuff, it's like a domino. You just, you, you can feel all of it, but that moment when it comes up in this very intense way, which were your biggest fear, like it was my biggest fear happened. And then it was as if these years of fear just filed out of my body. And I, Mm. I remember years ago reading this thing that there are these two paths. I don't know. I don't recall who said it, but when you hit a, um, you know, a hardship, um, you sort of have two routes and you can Mm -hmm. go in the route of more 
dysfunction and more suffering, um, or you do, there is a window. And I don't want to say for everyone or at every time, because there are also times in my life where I know this could have happened. And I didn't, my mental health was at a, a place at that time where it's, I don't want to say everyone has the capacity or the biology in a moment Mm -hmm. or the timing is right for to take a different path to say this can um, make me more dysfunctional or cause more pain or it can heal the pain. And Mm -hmm. that's what I was feeling with this. And I also can recognize that there were times in my life where had the same thing happened, that other path wouldn't have been available to me. And it's by the grace of who know of, of something in the universe that it was available this time. Um, mm. So I, I think that the only thing I'm saying is to look to see if it's available um, mm-hmm. because it, it might, it may be. Split into and the 
So as I mentioned in the introduction of the episode, that song is from Andrea's friend who died. It's called Whale and Mouse, Liza Maytalk. Um, and you can actually get that song if you want to listen to it more on SoundCloud. Uh, I'll put the link in the liner notes. But otherwise, just a reminder to check out Andrea Gibson's website at andreagibson.org that all these things will be in the liner notes. But a couple things to especially look into is the book, You Better Be Lightning. And you can get that through the website right on the front page. But also you should sign up for Andrea Gibson's newsletter, uh, Things That Don't Suck. And um, you can subscribe on the front page of Andrea's website. But thank you so much to Andrea. Just such a sweet conversation. We didn't include this in the episode, but Andrea described it like this and it felt true, which is like, we've never talked before until we had this conversation. And when we had the conversation it just felt like immediate knowing or a way of just falling in with each other so easily with emotion and laughter and tears all the way through. And what a, what a lovely thing to get from somebody um, in the world who uh, is doing what they're doing and living how they're living. Um, But Andrea described it as if we were uh, our hearts we're holding hands um, through that whole conversation. So it means a lot to have shared it with you. Hope you enjoyed it. Nick Jaina. Hi. <clears throat> Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. You probably get that uh, reaction a lot of people saying this was our first conversation, but it felt like we've known each other a long time. Um, maybe not just in that way. I guess a version of it is there's often times where people say like, I don't even know why I'm telling you all this. Like, I'm, I, you know, I I'm it. not. I love it when someone says that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, good. That's what I want. <laughs> That's the thing that I wanted to hear. The thing that you, you, you're surprised you're saying out loud. Um, which I think is a version of the, you know, I've known you in some way, or I know something about you that allows me to open up like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hope so. I think so. And I think I'm so glad for the purposes of what we're creating here that that's something that can happen with people that like I've never met before and just how deeply we get to drop in and, yeah. and the value of that for the content in our podcast, you know? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So how are you doing on this, uh, this fresh start to a new year? Anything on your mind that is launching you into 2022? <laughs> uh, I've, I finally set the time limit on my social media content on my phone, which is, I don't know, have you ever done that? 
Yeah. It's where it does it turn you off automatically or it lets you, can, you know. You can overwrite it, but a thing comes up and it's <laughs> it just that even if you do overwrite it, there's something in the shame of that screen coming up because, uh, yeah. you know, like phone social media time feels like so, I don't know, private and uh, illicit. And, you know, it's like nobody yes. can see me, even though, of course, you know, any corporation can see you. Yeah. But when that's <laughs> all, all the social media organizations are watching. But when that but, screen yeah. comes up, I it, it's like I want to just like drop my phone and look around and just start whistling. Like, I've never no, done it. What are you talking about? <laughs> that okay, that's cool. So just the uh, humiliation is worth it. <laughs> your own private humiliation. <laughs> There's ones where if you overuse your phone, I've seen this before, it contributes or donates to a cause automatically. Whoa. Like anytime wow. you go over to like kick five bucks to an organization <laughs> of your picking. Okay. Which I like, but um, you could just be like, great. Hey, it's doing something good. I'm just going to keep using the phone endlessly because mm -hmm. it's contributing, but you know, it costs you. Yeah. Um, so is that an iPhone setting? Yeah. Okay. I'm sure it's in other ones in different ways. I've, I'm finding though, the, the thing, I don't know if this exists, but what would be more useful is it, because it does track how many times you turn it on or, you mm -hmm. know, like shake it awake or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's alarming. Uh, I don't know if you can set a limit for how many times it will allow you to to look at it because it's more the frequency than the than the duration, I guess. You know. Yeah. What a part of our lives that we regularly need to consider and are faced with. And it it reminds me. I just saw Don't Look Up, uh, mm -hmm. which is on Netflix at the end of the year, and um, there's that social media theme that runs throughout it, which is, you know, it connects to this, what I think, and I, I wonder what you think, but I, I watched that movie and we're going to try to avoid spoiler alerts, but there might be a spoiler alert coming at some point. We'll make sure, you know, listeners, but right now it's fine. I'm not speaking to anything about that movie that you shouldn't be hearing if you want to watch it and haven't yet. There's just themes around. It's in the trailer, the threat of the end coming and then in light of that threat, how ridiculous the things are that we do with our time. Mm -hmm. And what I really loved about it was not like, oh my gosh, if that happened, how ridiculous would that be? How ridiculous would everything seem? I feel that way now. You know, I talk about it. I think I feel like there's this time at the open mics, especially where I'm often saying how ridiculous it is, the things we have to do and the things we have to engage in. And social media certainly seems like one of those when if we really were present as 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 present to the end coming as if it were a meteor in the sky headed straight for us, like that's our death, too. But it's just not as present, you know, and confronting. Uh, in our day-to-day -day life. So it's so easy to spend time on these things that are ridiculous, like watching The Bachelor or, and I have them, you know, I have them all, but social media is one of them for me. Anyway, so did you see it? Do you, did you feel those connections? What was your experience of that movie? Yeah, I, it, to me, it made me think of, you know, the way that we are here as humans rather than Neanderthals is because we tell stories and that allows for religion and government and everything that makes human, human civilization possible. But it also is our death because like in that scene where they're saying, yeah, this story of this comment hitting, it's not getting social media traction, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the way that you have to, you can't just present data, you have to tell a story, which as a storyteller, I love, but I can also see how dangerous storytelling is and like how addicted we are to it and how it mm. needs to always be 
really potent and have this formula that's been kind of subconsciously developing mm-hmm. over time. And you can see, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Mother from a few years ago. I did. It was similarly a parable, I think, in my opinion, about uh, climate And that's Jennifer Lawrence too. But people got so mad. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. People mm-hmm. got so mad at that movie because the narrative was different, a different structure than 99% of movies. It, it yeah. was more like a religious parable or something, you know? Um, but just just to make the point, like I, I remember I, I used to uh, make music for ballets and people got so confused because they, if they'd never seen a ballet, they were confused about like, what do I do? I don't know how to follow this. What What's the story, mm. you know? And yeah. people get really upset when there's no narrative or they just tune out. And it's kind of tragic to think that that could end up literally being our death knell is, mm. uh, yeah, I don't see the story in it. Or it's just, it's got third act problems or I don't, you <laughs> yeah. know. <laughs> but even us like seeing it like oh because there's just the twist in that is this well we can make money off it if we can make money off it which is also a theme yeah, right it's like how do we make money off of this this death now this thing approaching yeah uh yeah um can but, you remind me because this is good i know the term death now but i want i want you to can you like define it for me and the <laughs> listeners because i did a podcast years ago that was called the death now and so i'm wondering like to, <laughs> to tell me what uh to define it for us oh i don't know the etymology of it but i i to me it speaks of like a bell that rings mm-hmm. when like the end is there you know like mm. like it's it, after that it's too late, right? Yeah, got it. Um, yeah, so this idea that both extremes, even like the fact that we couldn't, the story didn't matter enough because it didn't get enough clicks or that it does, so then let's make money off it this way that we're sort of ill in all directions uh, and that the movie kind of captures that. And then, okay, so this is the spoiler <laughs> moment. Uh, so it's not a big deal. Like if you want to keep listening... <laughs> You know, the end is like, it's, it's what you would expect, but there's this inevitability that the movie captures. Yeah. And, um, so turn off the podcast if you don't want to hear, hear this part. And then we're almost done anyway. You're only, only going to miss a few minutes, but, um, yeah, the ending. Do, why, why don't you take a, take a go at it, Nick? Like, what is, what is that ending to you in relationship to all this? Um, uh, well, there's multiple endings. The one that I'm thinking of that really has stuck in my mind the most and has really comforted me because there, there's a lot about the movie that is disturbing if you haven't been thinking about the possibility of everything ending. But there was this moment where just the, the main characters and, the, and their family and like the people that were around them are having dinner and they're not in denial. They're not oblivious to what's happening. They were the people who first discovered it, but they just, after a while, you just realize, oh, they're just choosing to just have a normal dinner and have a conversation about small things. And, you know, they're not weeping and moaning and they're not also like denying it. And it just, it stuck with me so much of like, even now in a moment that's ambiguously uh, apocalyptic or who knows what's going to happen. I just find such comfort in just thinking like, just have the dinner, just talk about, you know, the day, like, appreciate your yeah. loved ones. And there was just something, I, I should have written it down, but there's something that Leonardo DiCaprio says right at the end. That's just something like, we really had so much, you know, like we really just, yeah. we really just had it all, didn't we? You know? Yeah. And it just like, God, it just like sticks with me so much of just like, we really did, you know? Like, yeah. like we live like wizards and kings. Like we have all of this amazing mm-hmm. technology and 
so much of our days, my days spent like thrashing about why didn't this go right? Why didn't I get this thing? Why don't I have more money? Why, you know, um, we really had it all and we really had all the love we could have wanted and all the community and everything, you know, like it was all at our choosing, you know, and I know different people have different, uh, situations and, and didn't have all of that. I know, I know that, you know, but like relatively speaking globally uh, as a, as a civilization, we have the fruits of these labors that like, you know, people spent so much time in, in so much, uh, labor and, and poverty and struggle to like bring this bounty for us. And we really do have it all. And I just want to sit with that gratefulness of like sitting at the table, even as the comet's coming and crashing through the windows, like mm-hmm. we, we're really so lucky. We're so fortunate just that we yeah. have one dinner together, you know, one yeah. family. And it's still absurd. You know, even the conversation they're having is like, he likes to get the things from Trader Joe's, you know, like <laughs> it, they push up against how almost this is something I feel is the, 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 the impossibility of not sort of operating in absurd ways because we're alive at all. Like how we fill our time, how we talk about things, the ways we connect, how absurd it all is in light of this fact, but what's lovely about that last stretch is the absurdity is really grounded in like calm, connected togetherness, like a prayer, a holding hands, you know, being together. And yeah, the enoughness, we, we had everything, you yeah. know, we have everything we need. And, and, uh, and comet or not, and, uh, you know, climate change or not, you know, most almost all of what we do is going to be gone and forgotten in a hundred years anyway you know Mm -hmm. like like we're living in that absurdity regardless of you know somebody invents a button that reverses climate change or saves everything or feeds our you know like whatever happens (laughs) like we're still in that same situation and yeah you just have you just have to just let go and just be like (laughs) this moment right here you know totally this lunch is worth it you know yeah totally like if that meteor was coming friday would you still get this episode out with me? Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, I just, just imagine like, really, you know, if this thing, like, like in a way we do, we face this inevitability, like how will we fill our time? And, uh, and I do think you're going to die. I hope maybe even without it in my personal life and my life story that, it, that it's a learning and a deepening of understanding this enoughness like what we have and how we are here and i mean here you know like this this body right here um now with you that um i could keep knowing that to be all that matters you know yeah and i do think being able to have these conversations and go into the prison and sit at the cancer patient bedside and be with these guests and do this work with you and do these shows and hold this grief. It's, they're all ways that give us that reminder, you know? Yeah. The reason why I thought of that was the moment in the interview with Andrea where mm-hmm. the, about their friend who was dying and mm-hmm. the, you know, the decision <laughs> just with two days left to still, you yeah. know, live as normally as possible and yeah. do, do whatever you would have done normally, you know? Mm, Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. We are out here until the meteor strikes, pumping (laughs) out the episodes. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, Nick. Bye. Bye.